We are starting a new series this morning, Amplify. We want to turn up the volume on the gospel. And before we get into the message, I just want to encourage you to consider two opportunities to turn up the gospel in your life. One of them is to sign up for a Willingdon School of the Bible course. Uh, If you've never taken one, take one. It's a way to just go deeper in the gospel, to receive some really good instruction in the scriptures. And another great way is to join a small group. So if you're not a member of the small group, sign up online tomorrow, join one, study the gospel together. We're not meant to walk alone, and it's a great way just to consider the question, how do we practice the gospel, where we live right now? So this message is an introduction to the series, and I just want to read a few words from the booklet that'll come out next weekend. The gospel is God's song. Resounding gospel notes echo throughout all eternity, from before the foundation of the world to the people of God, singing before the throne forevermore. The stanzas include the wonder of creation, the tragic fall of humankind, the redemption of humanity, and the consummation of all things. The theme of the song is Jesus. Willingham Church has sung this song from its beginnings. It motivated and changed the church's founders, and it continues to inspire and transform its members to this day. The song never changes. It is a beautiful melody of love for Jesus. Our desire is to turn up the volume, to amplify the gospel song for our generation and the ones to come. We're in the gospel of Luke today. The gospel song, song being sung throughout this gospel. And the gospel of Luke surprises us. Jesus, he says things we don't expect him to say. He does things that we don't expect him to do. He plays music that we don't expect him to play. He befriends people that we don't expect him to, be, to, to befriend. Jesus surprises us. Let's set the context for Luke 19, if we're in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus, he tells a story to his disciples. He says there was a Pharisee that entered the temple, self-confident, upright, and he prayed like this. He saw a tax collector across the temple, and he said, thank God that I am not like that tax collector. In fact, Lord, he reminds God, I fast twice a week, and I tithe. I give a tenth. Remarkable. The tax collector, the text says he's far away, and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he just cries out, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. As we read on in Luke chapter 18, verse 18 A rich ruler, morally upright, he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. And Jesus replies by saying, well, only God is good. And you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich ruler replies, well, all of these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus says to him, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. 
And the extremely rich ruler, he walks away, he is deeply saddened because he loved his money more than God. Morally upright, but he didn't understand the essence of the way of God, and so he walked away. And when the disciples see this, they say, well, well Jesus, then, then who can be saved? Same chapter, verse 31. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. You see this in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And so Luke, in chapter 18, he starts to narrate the final events of Jesus' life here on earth. He says to his 12 disciples, I will go to Jerusalem. I will be mistreated. They will kill me, but I will rise again. And the disciples just can't understand this. They can't wrap their heads around this, even though Jesus has said it a number of times. For Jesus, there's no turning back. He will fulfill his mission. In chapter 18, verse 35, Jesus approaches Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem, so Jesus is getting closer and closer to his destination. He approaches Jericho, and a blind man realizes that Jesus is passing by. And so he just cries out. He's broken. He's lost. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds try to silence him, to get him to be quiet. But he insists, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears his cry and turns to him and says, well, what what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, I want to see And Jesus, with great compassion, heals him. The first point, before we even get into today's text, comes right out of the context. We know we have understood grace when we recognize our desperate need for mercy. We recognize our desperate need for mercy. So we're in Luke chapter 19. Remember these things. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He will be crucified. People are responding to him in different ways. On the one hand, you have the arrogant, the self-righteous, the self-sufficient. And on the other hand, you have the broken, the childlike, the lost. Let's read Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus, he's just passing through 
Jericho. It's an ancient city, a tropical city, blessed with an abundant supply of water. Herod the Great, he obtained it from Caesar Augustus. He made it into a fortress. He built a winter winter palace there with pools, huge pools around it. And the Romans, they had made it into a regional tax center. There were goods passing from east to west through Jericho. And so to this day, governments, they know where to find easy money, right? You tax the transportation of goods. In Jericho, there's a man named Zacchaeus. That's a Jewish name. And look at the way he is described. He's described as a chief tax collector. And so if you have read the Gospels or other ancient sources, you will realize this man was disdained. He was hated by the Jews. He represented everything that they despised. Rome is taxing them. This man is a Jew, but he works on behalf of Rome. He benefits from the system. It's assumed that he's using force. He's using fraud to get his money. It's assumed that he is unclean. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He supervised others. So he's getting a cut from his underlings as well. He's an outcast for the Jews. Hated. Unclean. Just covered in guilt and shame. And he's rich. We remember the story of the rich ruler who couldn't walk away from his possessions. And we remember what Jesus said about the rich. He said this, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So as we read the text, as we enter the text, we might be saying, there is no hope for Zacchaeus. He is corrupt. He's twisted. He's unclean. If Jesus is going to spend time with anyone in Jericho, a few moments before his arrest and crucifixion, it's not going to be with Zacchaeus. So verse 3 surprises us. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. The chief tax collector actually wants to know who Jesus is. He's a bit curious. What does Jesus look like? Will he do a miracle? He's heard reports, and Jesus is in town. So let's see if we can get a glimpse. Kind of like Herod the Great. In Luke chapter 23, we read, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. This was at his his trial. He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Unfortunately, there are two obstacles for Zacchaeus. One, he's short. In the Greek original, you read, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You like that? Let's sing. Zacchaeus was a... No. Pastor Ron won't let me sing in the worship team, so I'm going to start singing during the sermons. Yay! If you learned that children's song, you think of this cute little man up in a tree. But he's actually a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Uh, Second, there's just too many bodies in the way. Masses are following Jesus. People from Galilee, from Judea, and this short man is not going to get a glimpse of Jesus. He is on the outside. So just a question for you and I this morning. 
blocks us this morning? What hinders us from seeing Jesus? Is there anything in the way for you? Sometimes it's a person in our lives, somebody close to us, somebody that claims to be a Christian. It's a parent, a sibling, a co-worker, a neighbor. Sometimes it's the church. We just can't see Jesus. If, it just was, if the church just wasn't in the way, they're all hypocrites, you know. Sometimes it's a circumstance that we're going through. What hinders you this morning? What blocks you? Sometimes it's just our worldview, our way of seeing things. Jesus does not fit in. What blocks you this morning? Zacchaeus is curious, and so he makes an effort. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Climbs up into a sycamore tree. A sycamore tree has a, has a short trunk, wide lateral branches. They're easy to climb. Crowds surround Jesus. Jesus will probably not notice him there up in the tree. There's so many people around Jesus, but here up in the tree, maybe I'll get a glimpse of him, Zacchaeus thinks. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll just see a bit of him. See something happen. Then Jesus makes a surprise move. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from him. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, he just wants a glimpse of Jesus, but all of a sudden, Jesus wants to see him. So who is seeking whom here? You see, Jesus is the true seeker. On this day, as he passes through Jericho, this is not just some random encounter. Jesus is on a quest. He is pursuing Zacchaeus. He knows the name of Zacchaeus. He's in town for a reason. So we think of Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who is Zacchaeus that Jesus would even think of him? We know we understand grace when we realize that it is Jesus who finds us. We know we understand grace when we realize that it's actually Jesus who finds us. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Must stay. It reveals that the Father, he actually has a plan. This is intentional. This is, as I said, not some random encounter. Jesus knows the name of Zacchaeus and he wants to be with him, share a meal with him. He says, I must spend time with you. The original says, it's necessary. Today's the day. The language is emphatic. Zacchaeus, today. He wants to walk right into the twisted, rich, corrupt world of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus just wants a glimpse, maybe a selfie. Jesus, stand beside me. But Jesus wants to walk right into his heart. He wants Zacchaeus to sing a new song. What will Jesus find in the home of Zacchaeus? Uh, Symbols of wealth? Wealthy people, there's often others around them that also live off the system. With the corrupt... There are often others living off the system, maybe other tax collectors. Maybe as Jesus walks into the home of Zacchaeus, he immediately senses that this man, this family, they actually live under guilt, under shame. Maybe it's just thick in this house. Maybe the relationships are broken. What will Jesus find when he walks into the home of Zacchaeus? What would he find if he walked into my home or your home? 
If Jesus said to you, I'm coming to your home today, what would you want to do before he showed up? Probably talk to one of the disciples. What does Jesus actually like to eat? Could you tell me what he... Is he a foodie? Does he eat curry? Sushi? Maybe you'd want to order food in. Maybe you'd want to tidy up a few rooms. Would you want to mend some relations? What would Jesus find if he entered your home today or my home? The good news is that Jesus wants to be in our home even when we don't have it all together. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Zacchaeus, he's full of joy. He's so happy that Jesus is going to be in his house. So surprised. But the crowds are also surprised in a different kind of way. They grumble. They grumble together. They're offended. Jesus, don't you know what you're doing? He is a rich chief tax collector. His wealth, illicit. He works on behalf of Rome. We hate this man. He is on the outside. He's an outcast. Jesus, there are social implications. If you enter the home of this man and you eat at his table, then you are considered a partner in crime. You actually come under the shame of Zacchaeus. He's untouchable, Jesus. You can't go there. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, the religious leaders, they just can't understand why Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners. These people that are just undeserving of God's grace. Sometimes we grumble about those around us. I find Sometimes when I see people, first impressions, thoughts, just so not like the thoughts of Jesus. I was convicted rereading Jim Simbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He tells this story uh, from Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. Roberta was raised in New York. When she was 11, her parents' marriage blew apart. Within a few years, she was using drugs. As a teenager, she dropped out of school and traveled across the country. Eventually, she returned to New York and moved in with a man twice her age. He was an IV user, so she was then on cocaine and heroin. One night, she suffered an overdose, and this man twice her age left her. By God's grace, someone found her, called the paramedics, and she survived. This rejection, though, it led from one destructive relationship to another. She lived under shame. She felt that she was not worth anything. Then she and another boyfriend, they rented a second-floor apartment above a florist shop next to Brooklyn Tabernacle. Her boyfriend was abusive, but worse than being beaten, worse than being hated, was the terrifying thought that she would be left alone. Somehow she kept working during all of this, the drug addiction, working as a bartender in a nightclub, totally into the punk culture of the 80s, if any of you remember that, featuring the dead look, not singing the right song. And so if we had seen Roberta in the 80s, what would we have seen? Who's beyond the borders of 
grace for you and me? Do we wait for people to come to faith in Jesus and be transformed before we embrace them? We know we understand grace when we look on the despised with grace and compassion. I'm not saying they are despised, but sometimes we see them in that light. Do we look on those on the margins, on the outside, with grace and compassion? The crowd around Jesus grumbles. Zacchaeus is full of joy, but will it change anything in his life? Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood as tall as he could and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Lord, I am surrendering everything to you. Everything. Half of all my possessions I give to the needy. For the Jews, 20% was the limit. That already was going too far. More than 20%, just unwise. And then he says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now we're all lining up, hoping that at one moment, at some moment in our lives, Zacchaeus has defrauded us. He says, if I have defrauded anyone. And so we think, well, maybe it's just a possibility. But no, in the original language, it's a condition of fact. This isn't a remote possibility. He actually has defrauded people. He's guilty of extortion. He will have to pay back. So this is a salvation moment. Zacchaeus, he is just laying it all down. Again, we know we have understood grace when we surrender fully to the lordship of Jesus. We just lay it all down. We surrender everything to Jesus. Faith isn't mentioned in the text, but it's understood as if we read through the gospel of Luke, we understand that faith is understood. John the Baptist's words in Luke 3. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So the grace of God extended to Zacchaeus by Jesus It doesn't lead to further wrongdoing. Rather, it leads to a change of heart. He wants to make things right. We remember the story of the rich ruler who walked away, and the disciples, they asked, well, then who can be saved? And this is the way that Jesus responded. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. With God, all things are possible. An outcast... A corrupt man, a twisted man, a lost man can be restored. Whenever Jesus enters a life, there's a profound evidence of change. People surrender to Jesus. They come under his lordship. They get reconciled with other people. They make things right. They forgive people. They become joyfully generous. And how does Jesus respond to the words of Zacchaeus? He says, salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus is singing a new song. This man, he entrusted his life to me. He surrendered to me. He's forgiven. I'm on my way to the cross for him too. I will take his shame upon myself. This man, he has a new identity. He is a son of Abraham. He is not an outcast. He is not just a rich tax collector. No, he's a full member of the family of God. And one more thing. 
This is exactly what I came to do. To seek and to save the lost. This is why I'm here. This summarizes my mission. This is what I'm all about. I'm here to seek the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the sinful woman, the blind man, the tax collector. I am here to rescue and to save the lost. The lost means the broken, the ruined, the destroyed. So let's return to Roberta's story. Remember, she was a bartender. And after the bar's would close, she would pursue, proceed to the after-hours scene, which was crazy even for crazy people. After those all-nighters, she would head home. And remember, her home was next to Brooklyn Tab, and so there would be these annoyingly joyful church people on the sidewalk, and she'd have to push her way through. She'd go to her bedroom that faced the alley toward the church, but she just couldn't get away from the music. Go inside the church? No way. She wrote, I was sure Jesus could never love someone as strung out as I was. As per usual, she and her boyfriend, they split up. She moved to another part of New York with her new boyfriend, Upper West Side of Manhattan, and she would hear the woman singing from the floor below. And so one day she meets her neighbor in the hall and she asks her, so are you a musician? And she says, no, I just sing in the choir at church. What church? Brooklyn Tabernacle. God pursuing her. Meanwhile, her drug use intensifies. She moves in with a new boyfriend who doesn't do drugs, but he's a dealer. Years later, at the end of a five-day crack binge, She hits bottom, finally. And she gets in her car. She doesn't know why, but she drives down to Brooklyn Tabernacle on a Tuesday prayer night. She just comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just surrenders herself completely to Jesus and discovers that God loves her, that God accepts her, and she's set free. Maybe you're here today trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Maybe there's something blocking you today. It's a person in your life. It's a circumstance. Anyways, there's something keeping you from seeing Jesus clearly. Know that Jesus knows you by name. That he sees you in your seat. He knows where you've been. He hears your cries for mercy. And this is not between you and the person next to you or between you and a family member or between you and Willingdon Church. This is between you and Jesus. You may be burdened by guilt for, th- for wrong things done. You may be under shame and you may think that you just can't change the way you are. Maybe you're afraid that God would never come to your home, but know that Jesus came for you too. We are all sinners. All of us, there's level ground before the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so don't think that you have committed a sin that Jesus cannot cover, that he did not die for you. He did. He died for all of us so that we could be set free from guilt and fully forgiven. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He took our shame upon himself so that we might be set free. 
He took our guilt upon himself so that we might be set free, forgiven, and receive new life. So if that's you here today, I want to pray for you right now. Lord, if there is someone here in this audience that has not surrendered their life to you, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit in this moment you would remove the hindrances, whatever it is that blocks. It may be a way of thinking about you, Jesus. It may be a person next to them. It might be an experience, Lord. I pray that by your Spirit the hindrance would be removed. And I pray that they would be freed by your Spirit to pray this prayer. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me for taking my sin upon yourself. Jesus, I desperately need you. I desperately need you. Thank you for forgiveness. I surrender to you and ask you to send your Holy Spirit to live within me, to give me the strength to follow you. I want to follow you, Jesus, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, Go to the Welcome Center after this service or talk to the person who brought you. Come forward. We're not done. This message is not just for those that have not yet believed. It's also for disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus serves as an example. He was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. We are to be on that mission as well. To seek the broken, the battered, the ruined, the Zacchaeuses of our world to share the gospel words of grace and truth, to do gospel deeds that overwhelm people with God's goodness. Roberta, after she surrendered her life to Jesus, a year later she was in the choir. She was singing a new song. She started a ministry called New Beginnings, reaching out to the broken, the homeless, the drug abusers. Nobody was too lost, too far gone for Roberta. She'd experienced God's grace. She did not live a perfect life. She passed away last year. She struggled. But her sister-in-law, in her obituary, said there were four words that would describe Roberta. Laughter, art, compassion, and the gospel. Zacchaeus serves as an example for us. The evidence of grace received is a joy-filled heart. A settled heart that understands that God is sovereign over all things, that he has everything in his hands. No matter what is happening in our lives, we live under God's grace. And so there's joy. The evidence of transformation is the righting of wrongs. If we receive grace, then we forgive. We make right. We extend grace. The evidence of debt canceled is a grateful, generous heart because God has just been so good to us. We know we have understood grace when we find ourselves to be joyfully generous. Joyfully generous. So are our lives marked by joy? Are they marked by generosity? Are they marked by the righting of wrongs? After Zacchaeus' miraculous transformation, Jesus tells 
the story, and he tells the story of a, a king who has a kingdom, and he, he leaves funds in the hands of his servants and then goes away. And in his absence, they are to, the servants are to invest those funds. There's a day when he's coming back. And if we're disciples of Jesus, then we are to see ourselves as those servants. God has put things in our hands. What has Jesus put in our hands if we're disciples of Jesus? Well, he has put the gospel in our hands. We can all speak words of grace and truth, gospel words. We can do gospel deeds. We can overwhelm people with God's goodness. All of us. We all have time that we are to steward. We are all uniquely positioned with a unique set of relationships, and so there are relationships to steward. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then God has given you spiritual gifts. You are all gifted by the Holy Spirit, and God has given you those gifts to use them. He has recreated you in Christ Jesus for good works that he's planned from before the foundation of the world. God expects you to walk in those good works. And he's given you money. When I think about money, I often think that the rich should give, those richer than I. I'm not rich, others are. But you know what? If you make $34,000 a year, you are in the top one percentile in the world. So that would be a lot of us here. If you make $34,000 a year, you are in the top one percentile in the world. And so I think from God's perspective, we would be rich. Are we generous with what God has given us? Are we aware of what God has given us? Are we fully invested in the gospel song of Jesus? Are we raising the volume? amplifying the gospel with all that we are and have. If Jesus came to my home or went to your home, would he say, hey, salvation has come to this house. Look at the joy. And they make things right. Yeah, they have problems, but they make peace. And they are so generous with what I have given them. Hallelujah. May Jesus say that over my home and your home. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So Jesus, again, we're just reminded of how good you have been to us. Jesus, you've placed so much in our hands. What a mystery that you would place in our hands the gospel. Lord, may we be faithful to share the gospel with those around us. May we encourage each other. May we spur one another on. May we proclaim your gospel boldly, courageously, faithfully. May we do gospel deeds that overwhelm those around us with your abundant grace. May we use the time that you have given us wisely. May we be mindful of the time that we're in, awake, praying, sharing, May we see those that you have placed in our lives. May we see others the way that you see them, Lord, with grace and compassion. And oh, God, you've put money in our hands. May 
May it not be a God in our lives. May we steward it well and share with others. May the work of your kingdom continue through us, through this church, for your glory and your glory alone, Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.